You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. Now, before we get into anything else in this podcast, we have to start with the disclaimer. I have been known to use language which some have called colourful, some have called abhorrent, but it is what it is, and I have been known on occasion to make a sailor blush. So if you don't like the use of expletives at all, this is a gentle nudge to the door. Don't let it slap your butt on the way out. Okay, okay, good. So hi, everybody. Welcome back. Or if you're new here, welcome for the first time. Hey, uh, I want to thank everybody who has been giving just ratings and reviews. Like get them Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere fantastic I love you I do it actually I've not been feeling great this past week uh, as it turns out uh, I stressed myself so much that I triggered my menstrual cycle even though I'm on contraceptives hormonal contraceptives and it has exacerbated and amplified ADHD symptoms and I am struggling so it's been a bad bad week for me and Again, you're going to love this, right? So, again, the second time this has happened, a dude who was mad at me for providing factual information about Winston Churchill, after I blocked him on Instagram, went over to our podcasts, gives me a one-star review, complaining about my Instagram and saying that I'm playing a character because apparently being a historian and having coloured hair and being correct just just doesn't work in his tiny little lizard brain. Yeah. So, if you haven't already rated and reviewed five stars, um, it would be so sweet and lovely if you would do that. If you've heard a cracking, that was my wrist. Ow. I don't know why I did that. But yeah, I, I read the reviews and I get some really amazing ones, honestly. I was in the top, like, 30 in the Spotify charts this week. Like, what is that? Wow. And I was in, uh, I was in the top 50 for, for Apple Podcasts. This was really fun. I, I was not in the right place where I could fully enjoy it. But thank you. I hate being negative. Like, 
first thing when you come into the podcast I'm like grumble 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 um but you know it it's tough dealing with all this stuff and everything that could go wrong did go wrong and yeah it's been it's been a bit of a time to be honest um before I get into anything else though with the podcast I'm gonna talk about Trova Trip because I keep talking about it at the end of the show when I really should be talking about it at the beginning Basically, it's a week-long vacation in Scotland with me. And it's, I think, 3200 for the early bird price. Or there and thereabouts. And that's for, like, the first eight people who book it. And then for the next however many, it's 3-4. So you save $200 just by being early bird. So um, I know there's a deposit that gets paid first, and then you pay it up or whenever just before the trip. So... We're going to go look at some castles, right? So we're going to go to Edinburgh, first of all. So there's going to be a city walking tour, go up through the castle, an actual castle tour. Um, and I, I actually know a few really interesting bits and pieces about the castle. So it'll be interesting to know if, like, the the guide will also have that information. I mean, I hope he would, but I am that weirdo who knows, like, the weird stuff. <laughs> So yeah, um, we're going to go out of Edinburgh up to the Highlands. We're going to go to the Dunkeld Estate Village, Cairngorms National Park, which is just, it's just gorgeous. Uh, we're going to go on a whiskey distillery tour and tasting. I don't even drink whiskey, so you get to have mine, whoever gets involved in this. You can have my whiskey. I will gift it to you. I, I don't drink it because uh, it makes me angry. Uh, we're going to go up to the Isle of Skye. I've never been to the Isle of Skye. Um, Armadale Castle and Kilcorn Castle, which you um, you may you may know some of these places. You may recognise them from Outlander, which I have opinions about, but it's historical fantasy. It's fine, but I have opinions. And I will share those opinions with you. I'm trying to arrange like a, like a private show. <laughs> Not like... Not like a, a, not nothing weird. I mean, a wee bit weird, but nothing dirty. I mean, a wee bit dirty, but like nothing bad. <laughs> no, so I'm gonna do like a wee live show. Hopefully, if I can get one of the places to just let me do it. Otherwise, it's just gonna be me talking about stuff to you. Uh, that'll be fun too. Or I might just organize a pop quiz, history pop quiz, and you can win prizes. I'll send y'all merch. I'll do like merch prizes. That'd be fun, right? I just, I, I love a wee castle and we're going to four of them. I'm so excited. And we're going to do like museums and folk parks. And if we're lucky, we may see a wee Highland cow. Who doesn't want to have a wee Highland cow? But also, uh, like, like there's, was it six breakfasts and two dinners are including in the trip. But I know where to get the best food. Because I understand the lingo of the Scottish people. So you are safe with me. It's going to basically be like a wee Scottish tour for us. And there's all these places I haven't been to and I'm so excited. So um, the link is in the description down below. So if you're interested, just uh, check it out. Oh, oh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your chipper chabber and fact me. In fact, you I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. Our sources are... Catch Me If You Can by Frank Abagnale Jr. 
the greatest hoax on earth, catching truth while we can. Alan C. Logan Is Great Imposter a Great Imposter? by Fayette Tompkins To Tell the Truth by Joe Garrigola The FBI, a centennial history, 1908-2008 to And of course, Scam Me If You Can by Frank Abagnale Jr. Are you sitting comfortably? Good, then let's begin. Now I don't really talk about men on this podcast too much because I feel like a lot of history about men has already been said, it's already been out there and there's not really a lot else to say. But then sometimes you'll find a very interesting man, whether it's for a good reason or a bad reason, and Frank Abagnale Jr. is simultaneously incredibly boring but also incredibly interesting. And... (laughs) I have an unnatural sort of obsession with thieves and heists and con men. Like, I find the sort of the concept of trickery just very interesting. And I think this might be the ultimate con. And I kind of begrudgingly respect a wee bit because of it. And... Like, the the concept of the con itself, not the man. The man is... Ugh, the man is not worth your time. Because I'm going to share the story of Frank Abagnale Jr. Some of you may remember a movie that came out in 2007. It starred Leonardo DiCaprio as a youthful, fellow, roguish, charming, just a... A huckster, a grifter, a schemer. He was all of these things. And he, from the age of 16, all the way up to like his early 20s, he performs an array of feats which would dazzle and amaze even, you know, even the most veteran of criminals. The film itself is based on an autobiography by Frank Abagnale. And it opens with, An FBI agent, played by Tom Hanks, he's in Marseille, France, and he's there to pick up a prisoner called Frank Abagnale Jr., who's sick because he's in a horrible, you know, prison in France. And then it pans back to six years earlier in 1963. And Frank, he lives with his parents in... New Rochelle, New York. And because his dad's a bit of a schemer, he's not doing well with his money, the IRS are there, and they're forced to move out of their lovely home into a tiny little apartment, right? Then, Frank discovers that his mother is having an affair. With a family friend, no less. Then, obviously, the cat's out of the bag and the parents divorce. And being a 16-year-old and upset... At his parents' divorce, he runs away from home. And so he starts doing a bunch of cons just to make money. He starts off writing some bad checks, which sort of snowballs him to eventually impersonating a Pan Am pilot called Frank Taylor. And he ends up using this to forge a bunch of checks. 
thus conning Pan Am out of millions. Because not only is he forging checks, but he's deadheading. So he's like, you know the crew member that comes on board and just flies for free because he needs to get to his next destination? That's deadheading, so off he goes. But it's these Pan Am checks that get, you know, Tom Hanks involved. So as Leonardo DiCaprio, still full of youth and vigour, comes face to face with the grumpy Hanks and uh, he ends up pretending to be a Secret Service agent who's also on the lookout for this this con man, this forger. And he pretends to be a Secret Service agent called Barry Allen, which is, you know, the Flash. Because remember, he's only meant to be like 16, 17 at this point, so, you know, comics at that point were in their infancy and he was very much into what would then become the golden age of comics, right? But by pretending to be the Secret Service agent, he gets the heck out of Dodge and he flees Tom Hanks. It's at this point that he decides to impersonate a doctor because that is a perfectly acceptable and reasonable idea. So he goes and does that and he falls in love with this nurse named Brenda. And she's like meant to be sort of cute and adorable and naive. Frank decides he's going to marry Brenda. He asks her father for her hand in marriage and then at their engagement party they are tracked down by Tom Hanks again. Da-da-da-da! So he escapes their bathroom window and Brenda is compromised because as he's waiting for her to show up at the airport she shows up with some plain clothed agents and he's like, "Uh uh-uh, no, off he goes. Flees to Spain and then France um, after like pretending to be a pilot again, impersonating a pilot, making it all the way back to his mum's hometown in France, right, where he gets tricked into being arrested. And then the time skips forward a little bit and it's, you know, Frank being on the plane with Hank, Carl, Carl, Hank, I don't know. Anyway, so they're back on the plane. The FBI agent informs him that his father has passed away. And he is so upset, like, Leonardo DiCaprio, full of emotions, great actor, and he ends up just escaping the plane and going to his mum, who is now with the family friend that she was having an affair with, and they have a child. And so he is so grief-stricken and so upset by this that he just surrenders himself to Carl. He's like, Carl, here we go. And then he ends up working for the FBI but he's like super bored with it and stuff because ugh admin ew and so he decides he's gonna pretend to be a pilot again but then he's caught by Carl Ooh, Tom Hanks is like don't do that and he's like I will you know let you do it one last time and he's like eh and they end up working together in like a bunch of stuff like that's how it ends and yeah that's that's the movie and it's basically based on an autobiography called Catch Me If You Can by Frank Abagnale. And of course, this is the Hollywood version, so it's going to be a bit more colourful and fun and just, you know, a good time. So the real story, or the story that Frank was pushing, was that between like the mid-60s and up to the early 70s, Frank was being a no-good con man. He was impersonating pilots. He was a doctor in Georgia. He was a lawyer for the Attorney General's office in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He was a professor at Brigham Young University. 
and he also cashed more than $2 million worth of bad checks and across 60, that's a lie, no, 26, I was going to say 62, 26 countries across the world. And this was while he was a teenager and being chased by the FBI. So, this story of this amazing con man It's a fucking hoax. He made it up. It's, it's, the greatest con he ever pulled was convincing people that he was, in fact, this amazing, amazing con man. Right, so, so let me tell you the real story of Frank William Abagnale Jr., who was born on the 27th of April, 1948, to Paula Abagnale, who was... French-American, and Frank Abagnale Sr., who was Italian-American. I, I don't know if being French-American and, and Italian-American is a good mix. Um, I don't think it was for them because they got divorced when he was 12, or they separated when he was 12, and they divorced like three years later. So when his parents split, Frank moves in with his dad and his stepmom, right? And so Frank basically claims that, you know, the very first person he ever conned was his dad. Clearly he wasn't happy about having a stepmom, right? And so he gives him a credit card and a truck and he racks up like over $3,000 worth of a bill on it and yeah, yeah, doesn't really do too well for him there. So because of this, he gets sent to this reform school or he says he gets sent to a reform school in Westchester. Um... A Catholic reform school, so you know, one of the dodgy ones. But like, he always said that he went to like these really prestigious private schools, and the schools he says he went to, which is quite funny that he says he went to, uh, they don't have any record of him being there or anyone with a name even similar to his being there. So, like, he was not at any of these private schools, it was all, <laughs> all bollocks. And on top of that, like, not only is there no record of him, but like people who went to these schools don't ever remember even a whisper of the man. Like nobody, nobody remembers him. So clearly, clearly either the best con man on earth or, you know, didn't actually go to these places. But anyway, once Frank reaches 16, he enlists in the US Army and he's there for like three months before he gets discharged and... Two weeks, like not even two weeks, like a, barely a fortnight after he's discharged, he gets arrested for petty larceny, right? And that's what, like, in February 1965. A month later, he enters the apartment of this person in Mount Vernon in New York, right? He is dressed as a cop, so he's impersonating a cop, and he says that he's investigating this guy's daughter and he's like you know suspicious as fuck because of course he is there's a incredibly young looking police officer asking about your teenage daughter you know your hackles are going to be up just a wee bit so he ends up calling the mount vernon police uh you know just to double check to see if you know they sent this officer around and they're like absolutely fucking not not even a little bit so, 
the police come in and as it turns out he's in he somehow got a uniform i don't know how he got the uniform but he has a toy gun and a paper badge like a paper badge i mean i know it's the 60s but that's a bit much right so he gets arrested and he gets booked in these charges and he then instead of going to like prison and he gets sent for evaluation in the grassland psychiatric institute in westchester anyway they they clearly think he's okay or at least not too bad and he gets released they're just like hey he's just being a silly belly right and so he gets he gets out and in june 1965 he gets arrested in Eureka, California, because he stole a Ford Mustang from one of his dad's neighbours. And so there's like a picture of him in like the paper being questioned by like an FBI agent, because in order to, to like pay this, he had, you know, forged a bunch of checks and done a bunch of like bad checks. And so he'd driven from New York all the way over to California and these checks actually um he'd actually stolen them from like a family so he wasn't even like forging them really i mean he was forging them but he wasn't doing anything like clever he was just writing checks that belonged to this family like and so he gets arrested um he's also charged with impersonating a customs official but that gets dropped because clearly they didn't have enough like tangible evidence but they could prove that he stole the checks wrote the checks cashed the checks and stole the car and yeah yeah so although he's like caught in california like the fbi is involved because it crosses state lines right the crime crosses state lines so yeah he ends up getting transferred back to new york and he gets released into his father's custody because He's 17 and they're like, oh, come on, your dad's going to take care of you now, you know, give you a good smack because, you know, corporal punishment was the way of things back then. And that will sort him out because, boy, golly gosh, what a silly boy. Just, just, you know, like every teenage boy does, every boy just nicks a car and goes on a cross country drive, right? No? Okay. So he... Yeah, he's in his dad's uh, custody and um, he decides, I don't want to stay here. And this is where he like impersonates a pilot. So he goes to like a uniform company. It's probably the same place that he got the police officer's uniform. So he goes there, gets this pilot's uniform, which he pays for with money cashed from forged checks, right? So he's learned a wee bit since, clearly. And um, he goes around and promotes himself. Like he actually goes to local media and local papers and stuff and he tells them he's a graduate of the American Airlines Pilot School in Fort Worth, Texas. And then <laughs> he's out there selling this, right? But then he gets arrested a couple of days later for for bad checks, right? 
or was it bad checks or theft? For stealing, for stealing checks, right? <laughs> he gets arrested again. And he gets sentenced to three years in prison. So he's supposed to go to the Great Meadow Prison and he's supposed to serve three years. He only serves two and he gets released into the custody of his mum. Now, this is what I wonder, right? Was he released into his mum's custody? Because when he was in his dad's custody, he just buggered up. Or was his dad just like, absolutely fucking not. No chance. He's your problem now. Like, do you think it was maybe like that? But yeah, he's, you know, in the custody of his mum. He's on parole because he's what? Uh, 16, 17, 20, 20, no, 19. He's 19. <laughs> oh my goodness. I cannot math sometimes. Math is hard. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, so he violates his parole, right? By stealing a car in Boston. He's 19. He's 19 and he's already buggered up again, right? So, yeah. He has to go back to prison. And so there he is. Sent back to Great Meadow Prison for another year. So... He does eventually serve his full sentence. I mean, that's that's good, right? Right? Mm. And after finally serving all three years of his sentence, Frank is finally released on Christmas Eve 1968. Now, habits are hard to break, especially for Frank, and he decides that he is going to impersonate being a pilot again. And so he's on... Uh, it's not Pan Am this time or American Airlines, it's um, TWA, right? And so he's on a plane flying from New York to Miami, and this is like 1969, where he meets a stewardess, a flight attendant, Paula Parks, right? Paula is pretty, she's smart, she's, you know, she she's what he wants, right? Obviously. And he finds out what hotel she's staying in. He finds her room and he sends two dozen red roses and a five pound box of chocolate. And she's like, okay, that's nice, I guess. Um, and, you know, in, in his defence, right, in this moment, right, it's the 1960s. In the 1960s, if a handsome young gentleman were to send me two dozen roses and a five pound box of chocolate... I'm listen. I use the I use the decimal system. I don't I don't know pounds, right? Uh, it sounds heavy. I assume that's a lot of chocolate. Okay, so in fairness, if somebody were to send me two dozen roses now and a box of chocolates, I would also be very, very appreciative. But um, he sends her this, and when she goes to fly to New Orleans the next day, he's waiting for her at the airport. Because what he does is he, being a sneaky wee bastard, he finds out her work schedule and he stalks her. He actually stalks her. Not so fucking romantic now, is it? So Paula, she does try and tell him that she's not interested. Like, my favourite thing I ever heard her say about him was that he smelt really bad because he smelt like fear. (laughs) Which uh, I think is probably one of the worst 
<laughs> insults you can get. Like he he smelled awful because he smelled like fear. <laughs> But yes, stinky man here, completely unable to take a fucking hint, he ends up following her all over the eastern seaboard. Like, what? And yeah, this lasts for bloody weeks. So he's doing this and he even shows up at her apartment in New Orleans. Just shows up. And she's like, oh, hi, I have to go visit my parents in Baton Rouge. Clearly, this is like a very gentle rejection. You know, um, I can't spend time with you because I have to go to Baton Rouge and visit my parents. And again, like talking to a brick wall, he thinks, sure, this does sound like a swell idea. I'll tag along too. So he goes with her to her parents in Baton Rouge. He goes there, he meets her mum, her dad, her brother, and they all think he's just super. The family are so taken by him that, like, Paula's mum, like, invites him back and promises to teach him how to fish. And they just, they just adore him because they just find him so charming. But as they're driving back, you know, to Louisiana, Paula tells him, no, we're done, I don't want to see you anymore. You know, showing up at my apartment and then travelling with me to see my family. Um, bet much? And we're kind of, we're no. Just no. Paula and Frank, they, you know, they, they part ways. They, they disperse, you know. And she thinks that's going to be the end of it. Of course she does. Because she thinks he's a sleek wee bastard. He is suspicious and just kind of sleazy and he doesn't pass the vibe check. Not even a little bit. But Paula is unaware of just how skeezy this fella is. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. So after Paula goes back to work, you know, because she's a flight attendant, she's, she's going to go do her thing, she's going to be away for a while. As she's away, you know, on the planes... 
rationally thinking, this isn't going to be an issue anymore. This is done. He's he's aware now, right? Nothing more is going to come of this. And that this weird fella is going to be a distant memory. And she's hoping, dear Lord, I'm not going to meet him on another plane. But in a move that is absolutely batshit, Frank shows up at her parents' house. Like, a couple days after she's gone, he shows up and he's like, hey... I'm a pilot on furlough. I'm Paula's friend. Uh, can I stay with you? And they invite him in because, you know, they're kind and considerate humans. So they take him in for a little bit and he's supposed to stay for a couple of days. And he ends up staying for weeks, like four or six weeks in total. He's staying in Paula's bedroom and... The family, they think he's her friend. They think he's just, you know, a kind, cute little pilot. Like, he's adorable. He's fine. They trust him. Like, they they feed him and they, like, introduce him to people who were all around. And he would just, like, con this family. He would take them out to dinner. He would buy them, like, flowers and shit. And he would just do all these little wee confidence tricks, some might say. But how he did this, like how he paid for the meals and the gifts and the flowers, was by stealing their fucking money. Like, he rifled through their papers, he found their checks, and he stole from this family. He... He steals, like, was it $1,200 at the time? And he also, like, goes around Baton Rouge sort of nicking, like, money from these businesses too. So he's hanging out with the Parks and Mr. Parks, as it turns out, is a lawyer. And so he's he's saying that, you know, maybe being a pilot isn't for me. I think law might be the way to go. And Paula's dad straight up offers to help him pass the Louisiana bar exam. Like, He's like, I'll help you do this. You know, this could be something great for you. Because he's a fucking kind-hearted person who doesn't realise he's being absolutely fucked over by him. No. So Frank's in Baton Rouge. He's staying with the parks and he befriends, like, a local minister um, who works in sort of all of these areas to do with children. And Frank convinces him that he has a master's degree in social work from Ithaca College. Like, he's a pilot with a social work degree. Now, I'm not I'm not claiming that you can't have a social work degree and have another job, but those are two very long training programs. Like and he is clearly a young man. Like the, the times just don't add up. But you know, everyone is charmed by him. He is convincing. And so when he says that he's looking for work with, you know, vulnerable young people with disabilities, specifically intellectual and developmental disabilities, the reverend is like, yes, we need more kind, young, considerate people like you, especially those with, you know, um, social work degrees, because you know what you're talking about. Like, you can genuinely help these people. But as we know, can he fuck? Absolutely not. So, 
the reverend introduces him to like the faculty of Louisiana State University and they take one look at this boy and go <laughs> what no this is bullshit as uh, one of my friends says my favorite saying is what absolute fucking bullshit is this nonsense what absolute fucking bullshit is this nonsense who is this child why is he here so, and absolutely unsurprisingly, they inform the reverend that this dude has no fucking clue what he's talking about. He is just a fraud. He's a fraud. And so the reverend is like, okay, taking this on board because these guys, he knows they know what they're talking about. And Frank is, you know, he's claiming to be a furloughed pilot for TWA. And being, you know, not a total idiot. And he calls the airline. He's like, hey, any chance this guy is a pilot for you? And they clearly and concisely tell him, no, this man does not work for us. And after getting this information, the first thing the Reverend does is contact the Baton Rouge Police Department. And then on Valentine's Day, 1969, he's arrested. So initially they arrest him on vagrancy charges. But as it turns out, the car that Frank was driving was a rental car from Florida. So he has stolen a car, driven it across state lines, which he's, you know, I'm fairly certain not supposed to be doing anyway. You know, like he's just as a general rule. So he had, you know, fake, fake identification, fake IDs. He had a fake ID. Hey, mister, he's got a fake ID. And so he's got like a fake like airline personnel ID. And, and you know, that's two for two. So naturally the police are like, we need to investigate a little bit more. And that's when they realized that he was stealing checks from the family and from Baton Rouge businesses. And so he's charged with theft and forgery. Naturally, he's unable to make bail and he gets convicted on the 2nd of June, 1969. But instead of sending the little shit to prison, what they do is they sentence him to 12 years supervised probation. Now, of all the choices they could have made, they thought this was the right one. The slimy motherfucker right here. But he's like, fuck this for a game of soldiers and gets the heck out of Dodge. And he flees to Europe. So he ends up going to Sweden and France. So when he's in Sweden, he's in, I think, Kleppen. Uh, I'm not going to try and pronounce that in a Swedish accent because I sound like the Swedish chef. Which is funny because my brother lives in Sweden. So, <laughs> so he ends up defrauding two families in Sweden. Um, he steals one of their cars. I think it's an automobile. He steals a car. And then he ends up in Montpellier in France. So when he gets there, it's like two weeks after the warrant has gone out for his arrest for, you know, disappearing. And <laughs> this is the part where he's caught. He's caught... Um, in Montpe on Montpellier, and I don't know if it's like his mum's hometown or his mum's family's hometown, because I'm fairly certain his mum is just like a French American, 
as opposed to, you know, French. Because they want to make it sound fancier for the movie, but yeah. So he gets arrested in France and he gets sentenced to four months uh, in prison. So because he's stolen shit and they're like, okay. So he goes to France and he serves three months in Perpignan prison. Um, And he, he only serves three months there because he then gets extradited to Sweden because he's convicted of gross fraud by forgery. And then he's in Malmo. In Malmo, which I think is near where my brother lives. Uh, he doesn't care. He doesn't listen to this podcast. Hi, Dominic. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> like, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't listen to anything I do. But yeah, he lives, uh, I think, near Malmo. And if he doesn't, eh, then I wasn't paying any attention to anything he said. And it's conveniently now Swedish accent. But I digress. So, Frank says that the time he spent in these two prisons were the worst in his life because he lost, like, a third of his body weight in the French prison. And when he gets into the Swedish prison, it's, like, worse. It's dank and he gets ill and he's just not not feeling it. So, when he's in prison, he promises to, you know, refund and reimburse and compensate you know, his Swedish victims, these families that he's frauded. He does not. And he gets deported back to the US in June 1970. So he serves two months in Malmo prison and then he is banned from Sweden for eight years. Sweden just kicks him out. You're not allowed in. And he appeals this, but um, no, he gets, he gets deported back to the US. And you think they would do something, but no, no. June 1970, he is back in the US and he's 22 years old. And again, cannot help himself. Gets himself a pilot's uniform and he starts travelling around all these college campuses. Like... More bad checks. Of course he is. Um, But he's doing this sort of Pan Am recruitment, or he claims he's doing a Pan Am recruitment. Uh, And, and, you know, sometimes when people lie, like, they say the best lies are closer to the truth, right? And that's fine. But this guy, he says he's a pilot and a doctor. And he goes around these colleges and like at the University of Arizona he states that he's you know part doctor part pilot you know like fucking Batman millionaire by day vigilante by night what the no you're not a pilot and a doctor you absolute tetwank no oh so he he is an absolute creepy piece of shit right because what he does a trigger warning for sexual assault okay skip like 45 seconds so what he does he's doing this recruitment for pan am and in order for women to be recruited they have to undergo a physical examination so he physically examines these fucking teenagers right teenage girls and he molests them because that's what this is assault. This is molestation. That's what it is. 
Like, he just... And he got away with it. Absolute piece of shit. I want to punch him in his face, but he's already dead. Spoiler warning. <sighs> so anyway. The, the biography sort of implies that he does actually, you know, recruit these new women for like a flight, um, this fictional flight attendant program, right? Um, but he never actually sets this up. He just seems to use this as an excuse to run around, make money and molest women. So he's doing this for mm, like a couple weeks, maybe, maybe a month, where he cashes like 10 Pan Am checks. And on, it's like the 30th of July, 1970, in Durham, North Carolina, he, you know, he catches the attention of the FBI at this point because he has cashed 10 Pan Am payroll checks in these different towns, like, and eventually gets caught, uh, I think, in uh, November. Three months, three months he cashes these checks for, and he gets arrested in November 1970 in Cobb County in Georgia. And this is the jail that he escapes. So he did it. Mm -hmm. So he escapes Cobb County Jail. Cobb County Jail. Um, but then he gets arrested again like four days later in New York. Like he gets he gets caught. And then in 1971, he gets sentenced to a decade in prison for forging a grand total, well, forging checks that come up to a grand total of $1,448.60. Um, and then he also gets like two more years added on to that, just tapped on to the end because, you know, he fucking escaped prison, you know. So while he's in jail, he writes letters to the family, to the Parks family back in Baton Rouge, you know, telling them what they did, that he forged the checks, that he stole money from, you know, Paula's brother's, like, savings account, and that he was gonna, like, repay them. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you, but, uh, he did not do that. He did not pay them back one bloody cent. Nothing. So, after spending, I think, only two out of the 12 years he was supposed to serve in prison... Because, I don't know, I guess the Federal Correctional Institute in Petersburg, Virginia, just like, just wasn't feeling it anymore. So he gets released on parole. And he doesn't want to go back to his family in New York. He just doesn't want to do it. And so he requests the court to choose his parole location. And they send him to Houston, Texas. Because of course they do. So he's in Texas and he needs to get a job. Now, Abagnale, he says, Abagnale, Frank, fuck him, Frank, he, he says that he's like doing all these jobs, you know, but he gets fired from those jobs because, you know, they realise that he is a parolee, that he had, you know, criminal shit. But, the, maybe, maybe. 
sorry for that being really harsh for anybody listening with headphones on. 1974. What does he do? He gets a job at a children's summer camp. Camp Madison. And it's the 70s. You can get away with shit. So all he had to do was keep his head down and do, I don't know, his fucking job for once. And he would have been okay. But instead, he steals cameras from the other people working there, right? And he only gets fined, which is, like, so fucking shitty. But he manages to then while still pretending to be a fucking pilot, or with a master's degree in who the fuck knows what, social work probably, pretending he still has that, right? And he gets hired by an orphanage. A fucking orphanage! Right, here's the thing. Like, if you're a parolee, like, this is in violation of his parole. Like, this is not good. So, he... He's in, like, the Houston area, he's working in this orphanage, and his job is finding foster homes for children who are living in the orphanage. And, you know, he couldn't just pick something small, something easy. But no, he needs something that has power, doesn't he? Like every job it has, or everything he pretends to be, there's a level of, um, what's the word? Well, there's power, but there's also respect. There's reverence. You know? It's it's you're looking up to it. You're above. You're uh, aspirational. As my mother was like, you need to be aspirational, darling. I'm like, do I? I, I I'm, I'm cute and funny and I like history. But aspirational? Who the fuck's going to want to aspire to be me? Says me, who's literally in uh, the pink hoodie I've been living in for a little while just while recording in my mother's bedroom because there is no other room in this house that's free I'm doing my best okay so yeah aspirational he goes for all of these jobs that have esteem okay because he can't just be okay but uh luckily his parole officer is not a fucking idiot and catches him in the act And so, he removes him from the orphanage and basically moves him into, like, this, this, like, little living space above his garage. Like, he moves him above his garage because he knows he cannot trust this skeezy wee bampot. Not one bit. After this, he gets a job at Aetna where he is... Fired and sued for check fraud. Why are we even surprised? Now after this he does something. He does something good. I don't know what the good is. But he does something. Because it was enough for his parole officer to suggest that he start doing talks. About, you know, how he is a reformed criminal. How he is doing well. You know, and not being an absolute dodgy bastard. And it's from here where he starts doing these these public talks. And so he's going around saying that between the ages of 16 and 21, he was a doctor in a Georgia hospital for a year. 
an assistant state attorney general for a year, that he served two semesters as a sociology professor and that he was a Pan Am pilot for two whole years. Um, he also says that he recruited university students as Pan Am stewardesses and that he travelled throughout Europe with them for three months. He talks about escaping the FBI on an airplane, no less. And my favourite part of this is that it's like he managed to escape by going through a toilet on the airplane while the plane was taxiing on the runway. Like, that's his... That's his story. Like, yeah, okay, cool. So he starts doing these talks and then the talks get really popular and then he starts writing his books. But during this, he manages to get married to his wife, Kelly. So they get married, they have three sons and then in 1985, they move from Houston to Tulsa. So like he says he met his wife when he was um, working as an undercover FBI agent and she was a cashier in a grocery store. Like, either this woman is so naive and genuinely believes this man's bullshit, or she's in on it. Like, that's... That's gonna be it, right? There's, it's gonna be one or the other. But yeah. So while he's out and about doing these speeches, he's also setting up his own business. He founds Abagnale and Associates. The purpose of this company is to, like, advise company on secure documents uh basically you know to warn them against like you know check fraud and other kind of fraudulent shit like document frauds and other such bullshit so it's all about scammers and how scammers operate and that's his whole business and so while he's doing that he's doing all these talks so he starts doing this and by 1977 he ends up on to tell the truth and he also ends up on The Tonight Show with, um, was it Johnny Carlson? And so the story of this con that he pulled, that he says he pulled, just becomes a mega hit. So it's what year when he reads, writes his book? He writes his book in 1980, so three years after, you know, he basically goes the 1970s version of going viral, right? And he writes a book in 1980. And then he writes like um, a couple more books. Like like Catch Me If You Can is his autobiography. But then he does like other books on like identity theft and scammers and all this kind of stuff. And he does really well. But when he's doing these talks around all the way from the 70s. All the way up to like before he died. These journalists start catching on that he's, he's talking absolute bollocks, right? So by the, what was it, the early 2000s, you know, the kids are grown up, he's with Kelly, and they move to this Daniel Island, and was it one of the Carolinas? South Carolina. South Carolina. So they had um, filed for bankruptcy, and like, like, with nearly $2 million in debt. Although now, they don't seem to have that. Probably had something to do with the movie. But yeah. So Frank's whole thing is that he doesn't he doesn't uh like con the little guy. He only conned the big guys, the big guns and all that kind of thing. But yeah, it's it's not it's not even remotely true. 
all he did was steal from the little guy. Consistently. Just over and over again. It's like, he he just kept fucking people over. Little people. Just because he wanted a better life. So between security guards, small journalists, like they didn't have big journalists, but these people all through, like, the 70s upwards, get a wee nagging feeling about this fella and they dig deep and they're like, nope, this guy's a con man. The con is that he's a good con man, you know, or like a big con man. And it becomes this whole thing where they start looking at the numbers and he's like, oh, well, you know what? They didn't really, um, you know, want to say anything because no company wants to admit that I took this much money from them and the FBI don't want to admit that they couldn't catch me. Ha ha ha. Like, I'm in their, like, like 100 year anniversary, like, coffee table book. I have looked through that book, my friends, and let me tell you, he's not fucking in it. That was a hard read. It was very heavy. But anyway, um... He says that he stole so much money, right? And, like, millions. He says, what is it now? 2.5 million? He says he cashes 2.5 million dollars. And that's, like, 17,000 fake checks. Between the ages of 16 and 24. Like, remember, this is the time frame he's given. 2.5 million dollars. 17,000 forged checks. Between the ages of 16 and 21. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not the most genius person here, but that math just ain't mathin'. So, if you add up all the time that he, you know, wasn't in prison, that's like uh, 14 months, 13 months, 14 months, 14 months, I'm going to stick with it. And in order to cash that much money, in order to cash 17,000 checks in 14 months, he would have to cash 40 checks per day. So yeah, he didn't escape a federal prison. He did not escape, you know, the FBI. He did not have a task force chasing him from the 1960s all the way through to the 70s. He spent most of his time in jail. And he just lucked out so many times like he was so fucking lucky he gets a shorter sentence he gets probation he gets a slap on the wrist of course handsome well-spoken white boy right right straight white boy yeah absolutely but yeah everything he did was fucking cunty and he didn't pay back a single cent to any of the people he fucked over, even after he made hundreds of thousands from, you know, doing his Google Talks and doing his university tour and the money he made from the Catch Me If You Can movie. Millions, actually. He would have made millions from that. And nobody, nobody got recompense. None, none, none. Oh, what an absolute piss bag. I am... He's awful. He's awful. And you know what? I said he was dead earlier. I was wrong. He's not dead. I just clearly just manifested that in my brain. Um, But no, he is not dead. Although if he dies, like, 
within the next couple of days. I didn't make it happen. I don't have that kind of power. Because if I did, I would have that kind of power to make me more money. <laughs> and not have all the things wrong with my body right now. But yeah. He's not alive. He's 75 years old at this point, at time of recording. But yeah, that is the story of the hoax, the myth, the absolute bollocks of Frank Abagnale Jr. So if you liked my retelling of this story, feel free to rate and review five stars on, <laughs> on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow me and support me on Twitter, which is um, who did what now PD, TikTok, Instagram, and probably other places with who did what now pod. I'm also on Patreon, which I am working on at the minute. It's slow, but it's getting there. And I also have PayPal if you want to donate and for gummy bears and other such treats and books. I spend a lot of money on books. Oh, it's 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 worrying right now how much money I have on books. And I need somewhere to put them, so I might have to invest in, like, a shed library. I don't know. But yes, uh, let's just skip to recommendations, shall we? Yes. So, for listening, I am going to recommend the Bar is Ankle High podcast. Um, If you have ADHD or you know anybody with ADHD, or even if you don't have ADHD and you just like people who do have it, go listen to that. The gals are absolutely fab. For reading, I am absolutely going to suggest Vanity Fair because it's my favourite book because it is a book without heroes and I adore that, right? So, going to recommend that. And for watching, I'm going to go with She's the Man. It's been all over TikTok this week. So go watch She's the Man. Just go do it. It's... A, a retelling of Shakespeare, but it's fun. I mean, I love Shakespeare anyway, but go listen to it. Watch it. That's what I was going to say. And with that, I am going to bid you good night. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Bye bye. <laughs>